Yeah. And he's my hero. How about yours? We have a remarkable task before us, and the task is as we examine these six heroes over the next six weeks to find how their life points to that true and better one, to King Jesus. God kind of reshaped my thinking last night a little bit, and uh, you know how sometimes you get woken up at three in the morning with thoughts and wrestlings, and you're not sure how to shape it, and I knew that it was God speaking. Um, I, I realized I've come into this series missing a component at three in the morning. Um, I taught last night, and, and individuals came up to me afterwards saying, I, I kind of wanted a happy story. This wasn't happy, and I'm left with saying, well, you got the wrong weekend because this is really hard stuff. And yet, in the midst of all that swimming around in my mind, God saying to me at three in the morning, did you see me in this? Did, did you see me in Noah? And I, I have to respond, you know, honestly, that I didn't miss it, but yet it wasn't emphasized in the way that I know that God wants it to be emphasized. And here's what I want us to hear. I believe that we as a people, without casting aspersions, I'm not talking about our church body here, I'm talking about humanity in general. I believe we vastly, vastly, severely underestimate the holiness of God. And in that, we can miss Him when we don't really understand that God's holiness is the object for which He sacrifices everything even his own son, that he would call a people to himself whom he would say are holy, that God's holiness would be put on display. He doesn't want us to miss that when we look at Noah. As fascinating as Noah is, it can become really technical. And we don't want to get caught up in the technicality, but how do we see God in this? So there's a good chance that some of you came in here this morning with a burden on your mind, obstacle that you want God to take care of for you. Many times when I get up to teach, I pray that God would help us to clear our thoughts and remove those obstacles from my mind, or our mind. Rather, what I would ask you to do this morning is to think about that obstacle for just a moment. If there is something that's a conflict in your life that's occupying more than a small percentage of your time, I'm going to ask you to reach inside your bulletin and there's index cards inside your bulletin. They're, they're blank. There's two in each bulletin in case you're sitting with someone who needs one also. Those blank index cards are intended for you to write down that obstacle, that thing that might be occupying your attention and, and taking captive your thoughts. I'm going to give you just a minute to write it down, whether it takes one word or it takes a sentence or maybe it takes multiple index cards for you. And I'm going to ask you to take that and hold on to it because I'm going to pray for you. So just take a minute to do that, and and then I'm going to pray, and I'm going to ask you just to hold that card. For some of you, it popped into your mind immediately, didn't it? Didn't have to think too long. Some of you, it's an illness, or it's a relationship. Maybe it's a job issue. 
I'm going to ask you just to hold that card in your hand, and I'm going to pray. Father, we come before you, recognizing that we hold in our hands or what's occupying our mind are things that not only distract us from you, but sometimes confuse us. Why you allow certain things to come into our life, we would readily admit admit is, is a mystery. Father, here's what I would ask of you this morning. You know what's been written on those cards. You know what is on our mind. It's not a surprise to you, but I'm going to ask you that you would help us to reshape our thinking about that obstacle. That we would look at it, Father, as perhaps something that you are using in our life to draw others to you. And perhaps in the midst of this journey and this hard thing that we're facing, that we would see you in it. And perhaps, Father, that you would use it to even take us deeper in our relationship with you. That we not try to dismiss it from our mind, but rather that we would willingly offer it up and say, Father, use this to shape me instead of pleading with you to make it go away. Father, we ask this as we examine your word. We open up the book of Genesis with a desire to know you better and to see you and understand you. So we pray for that through the power of the Holy Spirit who inhabits this auditorium that you would help us to see you more clearly. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we, um, you can hold that card in your lap or put it in your Bible, and we'll come back to that at the end of the service. So just set it aside for now. As we move through this particular series of the heroes, you're going to see some very specific things, and two of them I want to put on the screen for you. You perhaps will get a new definition of biblical faith, or confidence is probably a, a good word to put in there. First of all, the first one is that you're going to see that faith overcomes fear. So if you come in here with a fear this morning, maybe a fear of that obstacle that we talked about, I want you to understand when it's properly anchored, your faith can overcome your fear. And the second thing is, your faith is really your response to what God has revealed. God's going to reveal some things this morning, and what you do with that will really reveal what you believe about God. The most poetic description I've ever found about the concept of faith is really in God's own Word. And it comes from Hebrews chapter 11. So if you have your Bible open to Genesis chapter 6, we're going there. But first I want to start out with Hebrews 11. And Hebrews 11.1 1 says this, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. This author really hammers down on those two very important words, assurance and conviction. And with stating that, he launches into six verses about faith and what faith really is. By the time you get to verse 7... He takes us on a journey, which requires us to go back thousands of years in time. Verse 7 says this, By faith Noah, Hebrews 11, 7, By faith Noah, being warned by God about things not seen, in reverence prepared an ark. And immediately our minds are catapulted back to the very, very ancient beginnings of this planet, to the time when Noah walked the earth. And we're told something remarkable about him, He was filled with reverence. Now, you might think of that as a very churchy word. That is not the way the ancient people understood that word. As a matter of fact, I want you to see the word reverence on the screen so that you understand where we're told that Noah is being filled with this. He's got enough reverence that he prepared an ark. This word means to be apprehensive. 
It means to be moved with fear. Noah had an obstacle, and that obstacle was very, very real to him. So in the midst of his obstacle, he's weighing the situation, and he recognizes the reality of what's unfolding around him, and it causes him to be apprehensive because the obstacle is huge, and he knows what he has to decide, and he knows how he will respond. That's the story we find in Genesis chapter 6. What's remarkable that you should notice as you move forward with this story is that Noah never allows his fear or his apprehension to cripple him. Rather, because the God who calls him is greater than all his fear, he moves forward. We know that truth. 1 John 4.18, it says very specifically, there is no fear in love because perfect love casts out all fear. We'll come back to that a little bit later. Let's go to Genesis chapter 6, and we'll look at verses 1 through about 22 this morning, but we're going to pass over a big section in the middle there. But let's move forward with verse 1. Here's what you need to understand. Noah's journey spans a time of four or five chapters in the Bible. We're only going to be able to look at one this morning. And in the midst of that, we're going to gain an insight of this monumental situation that Noah was up against and why he deserves to be called a hero of the faith. Matter of fact, we find in Genesis 6, 12, it says this, God looked on the earth and behold, it was corrupt, meaning God was not pursued by man any longer. Only one family on the face of the earth was found worthy of saving because everyone else had abandoned God. So how do we come to this story this morning? How do we understand it? I would say literally. We have to take this literally because Jesus took it literally. As a matter of fact, he doesn't speak of it as a fable or a myth. He speaks of it as fact. This story of the ark is well known throughout other cultures around the world of Noah entering, of man building a ship and saving his family and livestock. We know this because it's told in Babylonian records that predate the time of Moses. So when Moses sat down to write this article, this story in Genesis, it had already been recorded by the Babylonian people. And other cultures in India have records of this as well because they understood this is an ancient, ancient story. So we understand it literally. Why else do we understand it literally? Because of the documented evidence on our planet today in 2014. What do you do with the crustal evidence over the surface of the earth that something cataclysmic happened in the past? How do you explain blankets of seashells being in the Tibetan mountains and the Himalayan mountains on the other side of the earth, 7,000 feet above sea level? And go to the Grand Canyon in Arizona at 6,000 feet above sea level, and you find sea life frozen in limestone, vast, enormous amounts of them. How do you explain that other than the fact that this is a literal story, a flood that covered the surface of the earth, a global flood, which is really an act of decreation, God returning planet earth back to what it looked like in Genesis chapter 1, water covering the entire surface of the earth, God decreating. So we, we understand that he did it. It's not even contested by most people. There was a global, global cataclysmic event. But here's the question we're left with this morning. Why? Why would God destroy what he has lovingly created? 
Well, we move forward into verse 1 to understand this. And when we come to it, we know that God's placed us at altitude. It's like a 30,000-foot view looking down over the earth just as God sees it. The sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve have really multiplied on the surface of the earth. So let's move forward. Verse 1 says this, Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he is also flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be one hundred and twenty years. So this first impression that we get out of these first three verses is there's a calm before the storm but you know something's brewing. Now, verse 2 uses a phrase that should be something that would catch you by attention if you really hunker down on it. When he uses the phrase, sons of God came into the daughters of men. Now, chapter 5 is filled with the records of men, but it never calls them the sons of God. So what is he referring to here? My personal take on this, you can differ with me if you want, the text is a little ambiguous about it, but my personal take is what's being written about here are fallen angels, the angels who rebelled against God, who took upon a form in which they came into the daughters of men. How do I know that? Well, there's a consistent phrase that's used throughout the Bible, and you find it especially in Job chapter 1, but in many other places in the Old Testament, in which the sons of God are always referred to as the angels of God, these specifically as the ones who fell. The Septuagint, which is really an ancient record, and um, the apocalyptic book of Enoch, which which is really extra-biblical stuff, has historical records referring to these individuals specifically as angels. But here's another reason. Scripture speaks to Scripture. And you find in 2 Peter chapter 2 and in Jude verse 6, God referring to this moment in time. Look with me on the screen at Jude chapter 6. This is from the New Testament. The angels, which kept not their principality, which is the place that God assigned to them, but left their own habitation, He has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day. In other words, angels who rebelled against God so ferociously and so vigorously and did something so egregious that God literally cast them into hell and is holding them in chains under darkness. What we would call demons. Some demons roam planet earth freely. Some are cast literally into hell. So that you just don't hear it from me, but you hear it from another perspective. Dr. Thomas Pink wrote about the same issue. Here's his quote. The reference in Jude 6 to the fallen angels leaving their own habitation appears to correspond with these sons of God coming into the daughters of men. By this means, Satan hoped to destroy the human race, the channel through which the woman's seed was to come. Why do we bear down on this? Because this particular detail is very, very important to the story of Noah significant to why God brought the flood up on the earth in Genesis chapter 6. So we're led right into verse 2 where we're told the daughters of men were exceedingly beautiful. Why is that so important that we would hear about the daughters of men at that point? Well, because very specifically, God revealed in Genesis chapter 3, when he was dealing with man as a result of the fall, that there would be repercussions of the fall. And when he turned his attention to Lucifer, he said specifically to the serpent, Because of what you have done, you will go upon the earth, on your belly you will crawl the rest of your days, and the woman's seed will crush you. A prophetic projection of the arrival of Jesus Christ. 
Satan understood exactly what God was saying. So in response, Satan makes his attempt to alter or destroy humanity. And how hard he tries is evident from what you're about to see unfold. So in verse 3, we see God saying, My spirit will not always contend with man. His days are going to be shortened because man is rebellious. So God, in the first instance here, reduces man from a very, very long lifespan down to 120 years. Now, that same 120 years is the length of time it took Noah to build the ark. He begins building it at age 480 years of age, according to God's Word. But what that verse also points to is the much reduced lifespan of man on earth. Such a short span that you and I live on planet earth today. Matter of fact, King David writes about it in Psalm chapter 90, verse 1, and he says, man's life will now be threescore and ten, meaning 70 years. But what you're seeing here is the first reduction of man's lifespan because of his rebellion against God. With that thought in mind about those fallen angels, move forward with me into verse 4. It says in verse 4, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. So that these monstrosities are produced through the union of these fallen angels and the daughters of men is really evident in verse 4 of chapter 6 there. We see a word that appears, and it's the word nephil or Nephilim. If you're using one of the church Bibles this morning and you see right next to the word Nephilim, the number two, if you look down at the very bottom of the page, you're going to see a word that's inserted there. It's the word giants. There were giants on the earth in those days is the way some translations read. The Nephil are not just a bully. They don't just have attitude. We're also told they're super warriors fierce individuals who were giants on the earth. So here's what Noah's got as far as an obstacle, one of them, a form of man with corrupted genetics, with tremendous capacity, according to God's Word. Noah had some form of giant bullies walking around. Now, it's natural that we would be really fascinated by this and want more information, but God doesn't give us more information. He only gives us what He knows that we need to know, and He leaves it at that. But let's take away from that, not just that fact and detail, but this image. What a horrendous scene before the eyes of an all-seeing God. People who are inwardly perverted, outwardly extremely violent, and upwardly totally rebellious against God. What a stark contrast from five chapters earlier when God looked upon His earth and said, It's very good. He's no longer saying it's very good. Now God sees that it's very corrupt. Noah is only 10 generations from Adam. It doesn't take long for sin to spread like wildfire throughout the earth. Now, according to God's word, Adam lived to be over 900 years of age. Very, very long lifespan. He didn't live to see Noah born, but he did live to see Methuselah. And he did live to see Lamech. Those individuals passed on the information to Noah about what happened in paradise and what happened as a result of the fall. So we come to this question, the cause for the flood. Why did God do that? And we have to say it's directly related to the fall of man. 
Because God said, as a result of the fall, as a result of eating the fruit and disobeying me, you will gain the knowledge of good and evil. It will happen because that's the fruit that they ate of. And they did gain the knowledge of good and evil. And so what Adam watched unfold over the span of 900 years on planet Earth is evil just begins this insidious crawl, spreading out all over the planet, slithering across the face of the Earth. And just as God had promised, death came. And it spread across his once pristine planet. So immediately after the fall of man, God says to Eve, your seed will produce a deliverer. A rescuer will come. And he turns to Lucifer and says, that one will crush you. So what do we find Lucifer doing? Satan attempts to destroy the channel through which Jesus is to come by corrupting mankind. So in verse 6, we see we're told that God grieved Look look very closely at it. It says the Lord was grieved. It tells us his heart is filled with pain. Now, attention naturally occurs when we begin using human terms to try and describe God. We begin using our own vernacular to try and make attributal claims about who he is. Well, what's used here is very intense Hebrew phrases. Please hear me on this. God is not apologizing. That is not what's being go- going on here. And it's not God saying, I made a huge mistake. Because many individuals will look at this passage and say, well, see, God makes mistakes. God apologized. He says it right there. Well, that's an English term. Understand what it meant in the Hebrew language. The word is nachem. And this is what it literally says. To sigh. To breathe strongly. When do we do that? Parents, you will immediately identify with this. When do we sigh? At a moment of exasperation, God sighed. That my behavior can cause God pain surprises some people that we can affect the God of the universe, that the pain of our sin is not something only man feels, but it causes God to mourn. Here's how I can contextualize this in a way that perhaps is a little bit easier to understand. Parents in this auditorium who have raised student drivers, you you know what it is to sigh, okay? I want to put it in a new framework of thinking here. How many times if you raised a student driver as you sent them out the driveway and you trusted them with their car with your car once they got their driver's license if if they left the driveway did you say to them you know what um the car is a little low on gas before you come home will you fill it or or will you put $20 in it will you put some gas in the car and in the moment begins the first draw of breath in which you're ready to sigh because you know they're not going to listen to you, okay? And you watch your child drive out the driveway knowing that you're going to get a phone call. And the phone call is going to come from your child in which it sounds like this. Uh, Daddy, don't get mad at me, but I ran out of gas. For some reason, those calls always come after midnight or right around that period of time. I'm not sure why that happens to be the magic hour, but you know that you're going to get that phone call, right? Eventually, it's going to come because your child is fallen and your child can't hear your wisdom. So when you're a parent, you know you're going to get that call. You know that it's going to come and you know that someone's going to have to pay a price for that phone call, right? Someone is going to have to go into rescue mode. 
and the sigh that's attached to it is a sigh of exasperation. See, God's not surprised. Nothing surprises Him. He's omniscient. He knows all things. So even though you warn your children, you go still into rescue mode. Why? Because you love your children. And you will do what you need to to rescue them. You won't say to your daughter who calls you with a car that's run out of gas, well, too bad for you. You better find another way home. Why don't you hitchhike? Now, I would never do that, right? I might do that to my sons, but I wouldn't do that to my daughters. See, you, just, you wouldn't do that. But here we have the world not as God intended it to be. And his heart is broken. God mourns. He grieves. You tracking with me on this? That's what you see going on here. So verse 7 says this, The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things, and to the birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them, not God apologizing. It's Nahem. Now after we read that monumental wickedness that has been unleashed upon planet earth, we see right away that verse 7 and verse 8 stand in stark contrast to each other because verse 8 says this, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Your translation might say grace. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Is that not a beautiful, precious word? Grace just burst on the scene. And so the first thing we discover about Noah is that God's extending grace to him. An individual who's living in the midst of a corrupt generation, a society that has turned its back completely on God, and note this, the eyes of God are locked on him. It reminds me of my favorite verse in all of the Bible, 2 Chronicles 16.9. It says this, The eyes of the Lord roam to and fro across the whole earth, seeking to show himself powerful on behalf of those whose hearts are loyal to him. God's eyes are locked on Noah. Why? Because he's going to extend grace to him. Because he's a righteous individual. See, it's the grace of God here. It's not the grace of Noah. So when sin reaches its climax... Grace is on display. Verse 9 says this, These are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. Verse 10, Noah became the father of three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Right away, we find the reason why God called Noah. It's his character. Look at the character of this guy. And you can see it just like I can. These three really obvious things. He's just, meaning he's righteous. We're told according to God's Word, the just live by faith. That's Noah. He's living by faith. It's the very reason he's in Hebrews chapter 11. Why he's one of the heroes. He's our first hero because he's this righteous guy who in the very ancient corrupt society is living by faith. Verse number two, the second reason, he's perfect in his generation. Well, what is that? Your translation might say he's blameless in his time. Well, they both mean exactly the same thing, but here's what it points to. It seems to point to the fact that Noah... And his family kept themselves from being morally perverted by the society that they lived in. They lived among them, but they lived separate in the sense that their morals were pure. So Noah is uncontaminated by this corruption going on around him. Here's the third thing we're told. He walked with God. How'd you like to have that carved in your tombstone and have it be true? I mean, you can pay for things to be put in your tombstone that aren't true, right? But have it be true. Mark, 
walked with God. I, I would love that if it was true. Noah, we're told, according to God, said, he walked with me. Now, it doesn't say that Noah's sinless. Let's be really clear about that. Chapter 9, as a matter of fact, is all about Noah committing sin. So he's a fallen man just like we are. It doesn't say Noah's sinless. And it doesn't say he's a great carpenter. It doesn't say that here lies Noah. He made a great barrel of wine. And apparently he had the capacity to do that, as you see in chapter 9. But what it does say is he walked with God. Here's something that you might not have ever known by reading the story before. But if you do the math, you find that Noah began building the ark when he was 480 years of age. It took him 120 years to build it. Over the span of that period of time, Noah had a family. Now, what we understand is that God came to Noah and said, I want you to build this ark for the preservation of your sons and your sons' wives and your wife. He started building the ark 20 years before he ever had children, believing that God would be good to his word and that he would have a family. And so this man at 480 years of age begins this work. The more I unpack about him, the more outstanding his character is. It just jumps off the page. Verse 11 says this, Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. God looked upon the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. We know that. It's been said over and over and over again, but here's what we, we forget. God had blessed humanity with the privilege of procreation. We get to make more of us. And God said, be fruitful and multiply and go out and fill the earth. Well, man had indeed done that according to what we saw in verse 1. But here we see not only did they procreate to make more humans, they're procreating violence because God's Word says they filled the earth with violence. Here's the scary part, and this is part of the fear and trembling. What it doesn't say, it doesn't say that it was corrupt in the sight of man. It doesn't say that. It's corrupt in the sight of God. Man didn't notice. Man's doing his business, checking his stocks. People are getting married. People are going to parties. People are just doing life thinking everything is normal. Jesus gave us a glimpse of this. He told us that these people had no clue. They're thinking everything's going on since it had since the beginning of the world. Look at what Jesus said, Matthew 24, 38. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware. They're unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will it be with the coming of the Son of Man. See, by man's definition, it's the way it's supposed to be. Life is normal. But by God's standard, it's polluted beyond measure because He's a holy God. And in His eyes, He sees that it's filled with corruption. But even in that, God does not abandon the earth because He's made this covenant promise. And God doesn't go back on His Word. And He said there will be a rescuer one day, a true and better one, who will come and provide a way for man to come back to me. So God doesn't abandon the earth. Instead, He sends a deliverer. And that deliverer, when he arrives, said, you know what? History is going to repeat itself. As it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the coming of the Son of Man. When everyone is giving in marriage and going to parties and having life, boom, 
Disaster will arrive. Read Matthew 24 later today when you get a chance. That's exactly what Jesus is talking about. Before we move forward with the rest of the story, I just want to think for a moment about Hebrews 11, verse 7, when it talks about the faith of Noah. It helps us to move forward. It said this. We, we looked at this just a few moments ago. Hebrews eleven seven said, By faith, Noah, being warned by God about things not seen in reverence, prepared an ark. That's where we stopped a few minutes ago. But here's the rest of it. For the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. Meaning you're going to see Noah in heaven one day. He's an heir of the same righteousness that you have. You'll walk the streets of gold with him, having conversation with him. But this is a remarkable verse for reasons other than that. It's remarkable because it's incredibly abrasive. It is so abrasive it feels like sandpaper when you read by which he condemned the world. Meaning his actions led to his own salvation. But his actions, by doing what God said, by following God, his life, because he's a person who believes and lives for God, became a condemnation to everyone else who was ungodly. In other words, he could say, I knew, why didn't you? You could say that today. I knew. God gave it to us in his word. God said this is what's going to happen. Why didn't you? Noah became a living condemnation. See, your conduct is really a rebuke and the ungodly choices going on around you because people are watching. But more than that, here's what I pull out of verse 7. These actions that Noah took upon himself are based entirely on God's Word, on nothing else. He has no other evidence than God's Word. He believed and took God's Word as legitimate, and that is the ground floor for your faith. Because we're told by hearing, our faith increases. Hearing what? Hearing the Word of God. That's what God's Word says, Romans 10, 17. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. And Noah's taking God literally at His Word. So what do we know about him at this point before we move forward? Well, Noah laid hold of things that he couldn't see. He's laboring, building the ark, even while the world's looking at him as a fanatic, thinking, what a nut job. Can you believe what that guy's doing out in the wilderness? And obviously, he's got bullies walking around. But honestly, there was nothing to indicate anything differently. That's why Jesus said people are going about their business thinking everything's normal. All things continued as they were since the beginning of creation, according to God's Word. No previous flood. It had not even rained on planet Earth by Genesis 6. We'll come back to that thought in just a minute. What could possibly persuade Noah to act the way that he did? God's Word. God's Word. What you hold in your hands this morning. God's Word caused this man to believe God and take Him at His Word. Verse 13, coming back to Genesis 6, it says this, Then God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them, and behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth. Make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. You shall make the ark with rooms and shall cover it inside and out with pitch. So God speaks. There's this action commanded. Pretty straightforward, right? God says, do this. Noah does it. And you might look at that passage, especially if you're not familiar with the Bible, and say, it looks like he didn't get any choice. 
I mean, didn't Noah get any say in the matter whatsoever? It looks like he didn't have a choice. He had a choice. He could build the ark, or he could try and tread water for seven months. Because God said, this is what's going to happen, right? And God said, this is the way of salvation. Get with the program. God has a way of salvation. There is a way. It's God's way. So verse 15 is really specific. He says, you shall make it. Now, for a wooden vessel the size of the ark to be compared to modern standards, there's no way to compare it. I'm not going to get into the details of the ark itself except for just this brief thing. We understand that what God commanded to him by the measurements of the ark is that it was supposed to be a football field and a half long, 450 feet, wider than a football field, four stories high to the first top level of the deck, probably seven stories high to the total mass of it. The way to help you visualize this is to show you it in comparison to a modern cargo ship. And here's just a little eight-second video for you to see that. Go ahead and roll that, Bob, so that you see the comparison. What God told Noah to build is much like a modern cargo ship, something incredibly sustainable upon the oceans that wouldn't pitch and rock uncontrollably but rather was seaworthy. God said, you will make it. Nothing like it before or since. So here's where I go with this. The first time that Noah took his axe and his saw and said to Mrs. Noah, I'm going to work, had to be a time that was incredibly intimidating. Can you imagine leaving the house in the morning? You're carrying your tools, wandering out into the woods, and the first time you pick up your axe to lay it against the trunk of that very first tree. He's human. Had to be incredibly intimidating. Think of the obstacle that's before him. Why even more so do I emphasize that? Because what's going on up until that moment was not consistent with what God said. God said, I'm going to destroy the world with a flood. It had never flooded before. God said the rains are going to come down upon this planet in a torrent. It had never happened before. As a matter of fact, look with me at Genesis 2.6. It says this. This is how we got water on the planet. A mist used to rise up from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. God's built-in sprinkling system. That's how He did it. It was like an aquarium system. There was no rain before this time. So here's the evidence that Noah is a true believer. Just by taking the step of faith and swinging that axe the first time. Took God literally at His word. Why? Because He knows God means business. And you've heard me say this before. What you believe about God is revealed in what you do, right? What you believe about God is revealed in what you do. Noah believes God. That's what qualifies him to be in the hero's hall of fame. Here's where we come into the ending stretch. Verse 18, we passed over all the details of the ark, but God says this in verse 18, but I will establish my covenant with you and you shall enter the ark. You and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you, and of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every kind into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. And so Eeyore and Mrs. Eeyore begin walking up the plank. Oh, bother, it looks like rain. You only get that if you're a parent. 
In this moment, Noah begins this journey because God has made a promise. And God doesn't go back on His promise, right, church? We're told God made a covenant. The same type of covenant He made with us. That we will join Him one day in eternity if we follow Him through Jesus. Noah believed God, and in so doing, he found salvation. So this last verse where we end is incredibly intimidating to me. I bet it will be to you. Verse 22 says this. Thus Noah did, according to all that God had commanded him, so he did. Is that not sobering? Almost humiliating? It's intimidating for sure to see this statement about our first hero. The the verse begins and concludes with a verb. And in case you've forgotten what that is in your English classes, a verb is an action word, right? So we've got a verb here. Thus Noah did. Did is the action word. He did it. So he did. Noah did, so he did. See, it's reminiscent of creation. The obedience to God's word. God spoke, trees popped up, mountains arrive. God spoke, creation responds. God speaks, Noah responds. That's why it's so intimidating. We hold God's word in our hand. But how many times we do exactly what he commanded us to do? How much easier would it be for us if Genesis 3 read that way? God spoke and Adam and Eve did. Hmm, we may not be here today if that was the case. But how much easier on planet Earth if Adam and Eve had responded, God said and they did. So we come into this ending. The thunderclouds are forming. God's wrath is becoming evident. The windows of heaven are about to gush open and the fountains of the deep are going to break up. Noah enters into the ark with this vivid image in my mind, almost an audible image, because we're told that God, boom, shuts the door. And only the sound of the rushing torrent outside can be heard. God has begun pouring out his wrath. What did no one know as he faced this obstacle? Much like what you've written on your cards this morning, only times 10 or maybe times 1,000, he had this obstacle. What did Noah know going into this? He knew that God can be trusted. Even in the face of trauma, whatever trauma is going on in your life this morning, whatever chaos, God can be trusted. Even though it doesn't make sense to you, God can be trusted. Because Noah knows that God intends to bring about his perfect purposes for His holiness, for His objectives. So we trust Him to be ultimately good even though we can't see the answer. Why? Because perfect love casts out fear. Go back with me to that verse again. 1 John 4.18 There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. That verse goes on to talk about individuals who do have fear, that they're not perfected in love, not meaning that they're not saved. And if you're struggling with fear this morning over the obstacle in your life, 
It doesn't mean that you're unsaved. You're not trusting God any more than what you can at the stage you're at. It just means you're not perfected yet. In other words, you don't know what it is to fully trust Him and fully believe. Noah got to that point where he fully trusted. See, faith really does overcome fear. And that kind of faith, faith that's God's perfect purpose, is for your ultimate good. Here's the scary part for me. This is the part that kept me up last night. This this flood shows to me the length to which God is willing to go to bring about His holy purposes, His holiness. God is willing to destroy that He might preserve. You capture that thought? God is willing to destroy that He might preserve. And in that thought, I find my true and better hero. Because God, He's so holy And he wants so badly to have this relationship to rescue us as the parent who's warned. He wants that so much for us that he's willing to destroy his own son. In God's plan to defeat wickedness, the only way for holiness to win is that our true and better hero would be destroyed upon the cross for my sin. I find my hero in that because there's only one other cataclysmic event on planet earth that caused everything else to stop the moment in which God destroyed. And then through that action, through the death on the cross, new life emerged. Amazing. Just as Noah entered the one and only door on the ark and God closed it. Jesus said, there's only one door to get to the Father, and that's through me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man gets to the Father except through me. I am the door. What an image of our true and better hero. So I invite you this morning, whatever you wrote on those cards, whatever that obstacle that is in your mind, if you want to do what the other two services did, I invite you to do the same thing. When, when the music begins to play after I, after I pray, I welcome you to bring your cards up here and just drop them at the bottom of the podium. Here's what I will commit to you. Our prayer team and our staff, our leadership of the church will pray for you, whatever that issue is. You don't have to put your name on there. You can leave it completely anonymous. If you want to, put your name on there so that your brothers and sisters in Christ will lift you up before the Father. We'll pray for sure that you will not succumb to fear, but also that God would have His perfect purpose in that obstacle. Right now, let's pray together. Father, I I thank You for revealing the true and better hero. We can see Him so clearly when we begin looking and that Your Word becomes alive and active as it does. We know that Your Holy Spirit has been present because we've seen things we can't see on our own, but rather your Spirit has given evidence of it. Father, we praise you for the activity of your Holy Spirit in this auditorium, in in the presence of the Spirit in the lives of these believers that are here. I can't allow my mind to escape the thought, Father, that there's individuals here who might not know you yet and are not yet in relationship with you, and I ask that you would move in their heart, come alongside them with the gentleness of your arm, and remind them 
that your calling is for them too. That there is forgiveness in you, regardless of the amount of baggage they think they brought into this room. Father, I pray for that. I pray for the recognition that there can be new life in you. I pray that you, for all of us, would not allow us to escape. Don't allow us to escape this auditorium without having dealt with these issues that perhaps have caused fear in our life. Surrendering to you that you might use it to draw us deeper or that you might use it to draw others to you. Father, that's the reason you allow things in our life to shape us for your purposes. God, we thank you for your presence here this morning. And I pray for your blessing upon your people that are here who have taken the time to study your word. Send them out now with your encouragement. Cause them to talk about this, Father, and not to forget it. But rather that these words would register deep within them. Use it for the expansion of your kingdom in Jesus' mighty name. And all God's people said together, Amen. Have a great week, New Hope.